In an enterprise software organization, the more you understand about the customer, what their requirements are, and how we build and deliver and service products, like you have to know that. Because at the end of the day, they're only going to buy your software if it solves a valuable problem. And it's the best at doing that. The more you understand about that part of the life cycle, I think the better leader you will be. So you, we really have to keep our teams all focused on that customer and hopefully delivering remarkable value and continually earning the right to their business. You're listening to the Enterprise Ready Podcast, a show aiming to change the enterprise software narrative from how to sell to enterprises to how to build for enterprises. We'll interview industry experts and enterprise software founders as we break through the jargon, establish a common vernacular, and share the lessons learned from building the world's best enterprise software. Hi, I'm Grant Miller, creator of Enterprise Ready and founder and CEO of Replicated, where we enable cloud-native software vendors like HashiCorp, CircleCI, Sneak, and many others to operationalize and scale the distribution of their modern on-prem applications. Check us out at replicated.com. The Enterprise Ready Podcast is brought to you by Heavybit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic, or just learn more about enterprise features, find us at enterpriseready.io. In this episode of the Enterprise Ready Podcast, Grant sits down with Mark Lorian, CEO at Tempo Software. They begin with a dive into Mark's background, where an early start in programming would eventually lead Mark to hone his product management chops by translating technical requirements into business requirements. The conversation turns to Mark's beginnings in enterprise software, where his first role is centered around marketplace space, enterprise mobility, and DevOps, three common elements that would follow Mark for the rest of his career. The pair discuss how different business principles are often universal, regardless of discipline or field, and how nothing interesting ever happens in the office, a mantra that Mark has applied to his career by seeking out customer data at the source. This leads to a discussion about enterprise marketing and how understanding how the customer describes the problem is paramount to providing a solution. Finally, the two discuss Mark's time at Tempo and his role in the Atlassian marketplace, where Tempo is one of the current largest vendors. This leads to a conversation about customer success, how to properly support partners, and how staying connected to customers changes as your career shifts. This was a fantastic episode to record. We thank Mark for his time, and we really hope you enjoy. All right, Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, happy to be here, Grant. Thanks for the invite. Well, let's, uh, let's jump right in. Let's talk a little bit about how you got into enterprise software. I have always enjoyed technology. Um, you know, even when I was a kid, I was tinkering with computers. My dad worked for IBM for his entire career. So there's always mainframes and early PC computers laying around the house. And I'd, you know, be playing around with those. And I picked up programming as a kid and had always kind of liked being hands on with, with software. It started my career doing systems integration work and programming and worked for a company that was then called Anderson Consulting. Now it's known as Accenture. And uh, I really liked that. I started, you know, doing systems work and technology work there. But the parts of that job that I enjoyed most was when I got a chance to meet with clients and understand their needs and kind of translating needs into business requirements. Um, translating business requirements into technical requirements. And that was like the most enjoyable part. So I, I left uh, Accenture and went to grad school, got an MBA in entrepreneurship and landed in a software company and haven't looked back yet. I've enjoyed lots of different companies over the years and different roles, but that's, that's how I started. And uh, it's set me on this path to where I am now. Did you go straight into enterprise software out of grad school, or where, where did you go? Yeah, I started with an internship uh, in product management. I think that's a pretty natural role for a lot of people making the transition from a technical career to one more pointed toward the business side. Worked at an enterprise software company at that point in product management as a product manager. And I have only ever worked at enterprise software companies. All right. Variety of products, number of different industries, different roles, but always the common factor has been enterprise software. And is it, you know, when you think about these companies you're at, so, you know, maybe the first one was Order Trust, you know, or an iConverse. Is there a theme around like, you know, what these products were doing or kind of how you thought about like your contributions to these different companies? You know, honestly, in the early days, and I suppose even still, uh, the common thread were contacts. 
you know, a mentor of mine brought me from one company to the next. So I sort of followed that individual. He himself was and is an enterprise software person. So I think that was some of the early glue that, that kept me connected with a group of people and kind of moving from one organization to the next. And the companies, again, the products had changed. I, I began kind of focusing more on analytics and security and DevOps, which is really where I've, I've been in that lane for a number of years now. And I think that that didn't emerge until a little bit later. Earlier on, it was, it was you know, some investors, advisors, and then, you know, some executives that I stayed with. That was the common thread in those early days. And, you know, I mean, I guess, you know, this is kind of kind of back in the early 2000s when you were, we were first joining these companies. You know, what was it like at that point? Was it, you know, because now you think about the funding environment, you think about how many companies we have in the enterprise software ecosystem. I mean, the, you know, the, the funny thing I think about is like a lot of these companies are sort of like echoed in like the, in the next generation of companies. So like so yeah. sometimes you'll see, you know, some technologies like, oh yeah, I worked in that problem. You know, twenty years ago, but now that's a multi-billion-dollar company, and at that point, you know, it was like a, a small exit or something, right? So, do you sort of see similar patterns, or I, I really do. It's crazy that you say that because uh, Order Trust, the company that's sort of long gone, and and I had came out of grad school right before the dot com bubble and bust mm. ultimately. So there was a lot, I mean, sort of craziness in those early days. But you know, my first company coming out of grad school was a marketplace. And it had all the promises to be a marketplace and helping connect organizations with products and services. And, and that obviously didn't, didn't play out. But now, if you look around, there's so many marketplaces that are really very significant. And I happen to be operating in one right now. My current product and portfolio is part of the Atlassian marketplace. So kind of early vision back then, and then they really just stumbled for a long time, and then now you know, emerge, and you see them much more mainstream you know, over the last, you know, I guess, decade now. Yeah, it's interesting. So that, that early company, I mean, like, did it see any success, or like, did it just sort of fail like, you know, out the gate pretty quickly? Its value proposition was tied to the success of lots of dot-com websites, uh, so the fundamental business itself was just going to get, you know, kind of cleaned out as the as the whole dot com industry imploded. So there were really it would there was not a high chance of success in those early days. But but as I think back, and your question is really uh, has got me thinking now. You know, my first couple of roles in enterprise software one was in the marketplace space, one was around enterprise mobility, and one was around DevOps. And that, that, those three things really have been the common element from kind of company to company to company for me. So I suppose now, as I look back, there's a bit more of a pattern. Mm -hmm. Um, Not that I was following one per se then, but it certainly is the case now as it's played out. And I think, you know, that I'm quite comfortable in the space now. It leads to kind of a familiarity with the customer, with partners, with service providers around that. And, and that's what ends up, I think, over time, giving you a lot more leverage and, and giving you more productivity because you know the kinds of problems the customers face. You're not starting from square zero. Yeah, so that sort of familiarity with the problem. And, and, like, and interestingly, you know, I find that sometimes you know, I, I listen to a lot of different books about software companies and you know and I, I find that the lessons from one you know business to another often apply right and so you're like you're like oh what I learned there I can take forward in this new sort of opportunity especially as like in new platforms emerge and there's constant sort of shifts in technologies you know there's almost like a constant like reimagination of these problems you know, from one set to another, but you keep learning along the way and then apply those principles forward. Yeah, I'm sure a lot of people have the same observation. But when I was younger, I feel like I, I was happy with movement and progress. I just wanted to be shipping. I wanted to get something completed, whether it was a plan, a PowerPoint, a spreadsheet. And, and I think as I got more mature, I realized that there is real value into slowing down also. Mm-hmm. And I didn't make up this phrase, but I heard it and I love it and I always use it. But the phrase is Nihito, nothing interesting happens in the office. And if you've got one of these sort of a product management, a marketing, certainly sales, pre-sales application specialist, I mean, pretty much any role benefits from listening outside the building, right? We don't buy our own software. I love it. 
I use it, but I don't buy it. So I don't have to, I don't go through the same consideration process that an enterprise customer does. And if you can get yourself out of the building, whether that's literally or figuratively or, or remotely, <laughs> listen to people who use your software, who influence your software, who are going to maybe resell your software. They are the ones, ultimately, they get to vote on how, how valuable your software is or your solution or whatever, right? And if you can earn the right to do business with somebody, that is a huge mark that you have good product market fit and you've got kind of all the whole product is in the right place. And I didn't get that as a young person it was about just ship it just get it out the door let me just let me move and celebrate shipping something without shipping the right thing what like sort of made it click for you that that was an important thing to do one of my mentors a guy that i have a huge amount of respect for his name is christopher alberg i worked for him for a number of years uh he's a successful founder multiple uh time founder and I remember going in and interviewing for this position. I was going to start up a product marketing function for a software company named Spotfire. And he is a brilliant individual. If he ever listens to this, he's going to giggle because I don't think he realizes what an influence he's had on my career. But I walked into his office as a young recruit kind of early within the first week or two. And he was wondering how things were going. And he, and he wondered if I had any ideas and recommendations. And I did. And I made it. And he said, oh, well, that's interesting. What customer did you hear that from? And I said, well, I, I didn't. I, you know, I, I did some research. I was reading some Gartner reports and, you know, I was looking at some industry trends that I found online. And he's like, get the hell out of here. Don't ever come in here. Do not ever come into my office again unless you can cite who you spoke with about some idea. And that was sort of close around that period of time that I had picked up this phrase, Nahito, but that was really what, and I was, I was a little afraid of this guy also because he was a very um, skilled kickboxer and he had a big <laughs> punching bag in his office and like nothing on his desk is, except his computer, not even a power cable, right? And he said, get out of here, like get on the road. He's like, we have a travel budget, get on a plane, go talk to customers and then come back. And then I'll believe what your recommendations are. And it was such a powerful lesson. And I try to pass that on to people who work for me right now, that nothing interesting happens here. We don't buy our own software, right? And if we don't understand who's using it, what problems we're trying to solve, we're never going to design good functionality. We're never going to have a good messaging campaign. Our website will never be as good as it should be. Our collateral will never be appropriate. Our solutions won't ever be as good as they can be. Go talk to people. And I mean, when you go talk to them, like, number one, how do you set that meeting up? Like, what do you, what do you say to get, are you looking for customer, existing customers, prospects? Like, what are you, who, who are you aiming for? All okay. that and more, right? So people who currently use our product, people who have used it, but no longer use it, people who have churned out, sure. prospects who haven't converted yet, and importantly, partners who may be implementing the software, or helping to configure it on on behalf of us for the you know for the partners take all the data points you can get. I, I think in enterprise software it's different. You often will have an enterprise selling team mm -hmm. or a BDR team that may be you know kind of banging the phones and setting up meetings for the outside uh, team. You can attach to any any of those, right? If you if they understand what you're trying to do, they will often invite you into a meeting, listen to a call that a BDR is having. You know, there's technology. If you're in the office, you can patch into somebody's call. BDRs now, you know, often will just invite you to a Zoom meeting and you can sit there and listen to the discussion that's happening. If you're an enterprise customer, you know, you probably have an account manager or some team and you can, you know, be brought in and, and have live discussions set up. I'm in a higher volume environment right now. We're more of a PLG or product-led growth company where we've got a much higher volume of trials that are happening. People are experiencing the product themselves with their own hands, often converting, buying and using the product without ever talking to one of our team members. In cases like that, it can be a little bit more difficult, but you can use the product to do some listening, You know, kind of looking at in-product metrics to see where people are getting stuck, where they're using the product. You've got to seek out this customer data in any way, shape, or form to gain those insights. If we ever sit in our office and try to design things based on what we think, we're not doing as well as we can. Interesting. And I mean, when you look back at, so first, that, that, that first realization when you're 
the CEO or founder sort of suggested that you get out of the office with your idea, did you did you take that advice? Did you get out there and like did that did that idea itself stand up to to customer feedback, or did it re- did it require some uh, some sort of spinning and adjusting? Uh, big adjustment, but what, what I did was I ended up cutting a deal with him and the person who ran marketing at the time. I said, you know what? I'm going to become an application specialist, right? The equivalent of a pre-sales person for that company. I did product training and ended up basically getting on the road. I probably did 150,000 miles that year, flew all over the world. I met with our customers, with our prospects, and I earned the right to be the application specialist. Sometimes I was operating as the pre-sales person with the sales rep and there was no other person. Because I mean, I had a bit of a technical background, so I was comfortable in the product itself. And I kind of earned the, I guess, earned the right to travel as an application specialist. So I was in all of those meetings and I didn't have to ask for them. But that was, uh, that was uh, software. This is when you were, you were the director of product marketing or was that the title that you ended up with at the end? That's the title I ended up, at the time I was um, an analytics application specialist. Okay. So we sort of gave me that title and it was a really interesting experience because we were taking a product that was used for scientific data visualization needs, right? It was used by biologists and people in pharmaceutical and biotech and we were creating a version of the product that was going to be used by business users to visualize data. Mm. It's become a bit more mainstream. At the time, it was not that popular. So we had to get close to prospects and people who were not currently using the product. So we were looking at not pivoting the company, but introducing a new version of the product and a new product line. So it really, I think it lent itself very well to getting out in the field and just pitching, listening, getting sample data sets from customers and working with them. But it gave me the level of insight into customers that, honestly, I have never had since. Hmm. It was amazing. What I, what I have done since is try to goal my teams or people on you know that, that work for me in various teams to get out there and, and do their version of you know Nahito, nothing interesting happens in the office. So and when you say goal then like are you, are you giving them like tracking like you sort of like asking them, hey here's the here's the goal, here's yes. the metric. Meet with 10 customers this quarter. Yes. Interesting. Okay. Yeah for years. And I, I think the problem, you know, I think product management people naturally do this. Uh, you know, it, they could probably generally do more, but in the organization, they're probably among the better individuals who do this. I think marketing teams, really, there's a big gap. I think marketing teams, you know, have the risk of just writing things that sound good that may not really resonate with the prospect, particularly in enterprise, you know, environments. So for years, I have had my marketing teams have MBOs that every person on the team needs to attend a certain number of BDR uh, sales discussions Mm. at a minimum. They got to sit down and listen. How do people describe the problem? You know, what words do they search for when they find you? If they were looking for a competitive product, what were they looking for? Like, how would they describe it? Right? Because it doesn't matter how we describe the problem. It matters how the prospect describes the problem because we're not going to be there. We can't convince them to go to a particular landing page we want to hear the language they use. Like, what did they think about when they got out of bed in the morning? I want to be attached to that. Interesting. Yeah. And so, I mean, what 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 roles do you think? I mean, it sounds like you know everyone in your in your marketing organization, your product organizations. I mean, obviously, your customer focused folks are doing this. Like, you know, this is their job. Do you have engineers spend time with customers in the same sense, or? Yeah. Uh, yes, and and you know, uh, not to the same extent that uh, that I do some of the more okay. go to market functions. I think really, um, I think the move to agile and kind of that development and product engineering framework has been really good because it forces you know product people and the folks writing typically writing the stories you know to get out there and really describe the problem through the customer's lens. I think that alone has made engineers a lot more empathetic with the problems their software is trying to solve, right? So hopefully our product people are really good about writing those user-centric stories. And I think when I think back to the days where I was coding, I mean, I was like reading off of somebody's PRD, like what the 
software needed to do. I never talked to a user. Hmm. I didn't even really talk to the product people. You kind of got the sheet and had to code the interface. It's different now. I think we've, we're sensitizing the technical side of our house to be very customer-centric. Yeah, so that's come closer, but really you know, making folks get out and saying like, this is a core part of how we do business is we talk to customers and we engage and we you know, talk to prospects. And so, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I mean, I'm lucky to be the CEO of a very remarkable company with some incredible people and 20,000 really, you know, I'm going to say impressive customers. I only know a few of the customers, but I love them. <laughs> but it's a much higher volume environment. And I think, I think the risk that we face in an organization like this and others, you know, there's other businesses operating with this level of volume. I think the risk is you can get too attached to the screens and the dials Right, So you've got such a high volume, you can't afford to talk to all of them, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't talk to some of them. Mm. And you've got to find a way to plug in and actually get on the phone. And when I, when I started, I talked to our sales team, and our sales team here is really responding to inbound questions that people have when they use the product. They're not doing cold calling or outbound prospecting in the more traditional enterprise sense. But I talked to the team leads and I said, listen, I want to get plugged into these calls and the early calls were really quite insightful because you you could hear the language that they were using and the problems that they were trying to solve. And it's eye-opening because those are the people that have to go to their bosses to argue for a budget to buy your software. And if we need to make their life easier, both in functionality and make the whole purchase process that much more seamless for them. Yeah, that's so true. It's uh, The product often forgets that make the purchase process easier for them, right? Like how do you how do you help them? How do you enable and arm your champions with like the tools they need to actually, you know, take this up the chain and and defend it and know that like they're they're going to drive value from it and help them, you know, do it well. Yeah. Well, in the whole world, well, much of the world has sort of shifted over to you know, subscription licenses. Sure, yeah. So, you know, not only do you need to win the customer over at the beginning, but you, you're you constantly in a sales cycle. And it's, you know, I think while that, you know, that, that puts a certain pressure on the organization, you can't set it and forget it. You have to make sure that you're, you know, continuing to deliver value, the whole experience around the product. And by that, I mean the whole product, not just the functionality, but the experience around that, the way they get support, what they're paying for it, how they're paying for it. All of that stuff has to work or they're going to churn and they'll go to somebody else. Sure. And, you know, one of the easiest ways to grow is to not churn, right? Everybody who churns out is a customer I've got to sell just to stay even. So you, we really have to keep our teams all focused on that customer and hopefully delivering remarkable value and continually earning the right to their business. And you mentioned that you know the company you're with today, you know, a little bit more product-led growth, higher velocity, you know, more customers generally. But I know you spent time at companies like Tibco, which yeah. are probably a little bit more like traditional top-down enterprise software companies. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Like, yes. And so when you compare and contrast those, you know, particularly like that, you know, you, you sort of said like maybe it's easier for for enterprise software companies compared to the I don't know. I guess like higher volume product-led growth companies, is that because you, you think there's just more touch points with the customer and there's someone that really owns a relationship on the customer side? Yeah. So yes, I do think that's the case. We I, I got to Tibco because Tibco acquired Spotfire. So we right. came in as a division. Um, Spotfire and also Tibco were, you know, were more classic enterprise selling environments where you had a you know, a sales leader, a pre-sales person, you know, downstream, there was a services person that was going to do the implementation. I think in those environments, and they're, you know, they're obviously lower volume, you know, the uh, average contract values are a lot higher, um, the volume's lower, but you, you tend to get, you know, pretty close to the customer because you're spending time selling and getting to know their, their needs. I think in those environments, you tend to pick up more knowledge about the account. However, a lot of that power ends up residing in the hands of the sales professional. Mm. And I think when I look back at my past, I don't think I did a great job of plugging into that stream. I wish I did more. 
because I look at all the information the salespeople have about the customer, their needs. You know, these are people then, and I'm, I'm sure many are still doing this, that are on airplanes and they're taking people out to dinner and you're, you're really getting a better sense for what keeps that prospect and the company up at night. But a lot of that intelligence ends up staying with the salesperson or the pre-sales person. I think companies that can figure out how to tap into that better um, have a lot to gain because that inf- information should sort of flow back into the marketing organization for improved messaging. It should flow into product and engineering for better product design and find a way to kind of get more inserted into that into that area of the business. I think one of the challenges, and this is maybe a little bit like as a product manager in previous life, like I, I my my perception was always that like the seller's sort of feedback on like what a customer needed or the problem that they were really experiencing always felt a little bit too colored by like what was gonna help that seller like try to close a bigger deal like right now. That deal right now. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly. Because you're right. They they're they think they are the best source of of like you know direct customer engagement, but that sort of it always it always just colored it in a way where I was like, uh, it's not it's probably not exactly what they need, or it's like you know, there's probably other context that I'm just not getting, and so, yeah, you know, it's like it, I, I this is why I think a lot of product managers would just be like, well, like put me on a call with them, let me ask them additional questions, right? Because you end up being like, okay, I understand what you're telling me, but like yeah. let me hear it directly from the customer, and I think that I mean ultimately you do get different insights and yeah. you know and i just i guess i wonder if like there are ways to sort of structure or incentivize to make sure that sellers are sort of a little bit more and look in our, our current team like I, I don't this isn't a huge problem for us but like you know i think back in other companies i've been been at and it was like a little bit more a little bit more of an issue i think for startups it's like people are a bit more like you know let's build the company together than they are like let me close this big deal right now so yeah i agree with that although I imagine you have that clarity looking back. When you're in the situation, you may not realize, do I have great clarity on requirements or don't I? Yeah. You know, you don't know. And, you know, if you think about strategy, it's about like, where should we be going with something? And if you, if you only respond to every individual requirement that comes from a particular customer, you're going to end up with this wacky looking product or company. Like, you got to kind of ha- stitch these observations together and, you know, it's like that telephone game that kids play, how quickly the message gets distorted. So you've got to have your, your people designing the product, you know, in close proximity to people who are using it and or buying it. And I hadn't thought about this for a while, but like you made me think about that tour of duty I took for a year as an application specialist. Sure. That was like one of the most rewarding experiences and has fundamentally changed the way that I lead because of that 12-month experience Hmm. And realizing the kind of clarity and insight you pick up when you just simply can have those sorts of discussions, and you got to, you know, you, that doesn't scale. Like you can't, you can't have everybody in your company doing that. So you've got to find ways of, of tapping into enough of that data so your, you know, your decisions, each decision's a little bit more relevant to the customer, and hopefully you kind of, you know, you get every every team, every function thinking a little bit more customer centric, and you kind of start correcting and improving the way your company is evolving because of it. But you have to understand the gap to begin with. Yeah, I mean, you know, we I try to do that sometimes by just telling stories about the customer, right? Like trying to relay information by using a customer as the example, right? Like yeah. and that's the sort of the vessel by which you deliver some information is like the customer story. So yeah, at uh, at Tempo Software, um, I hold all hands meetings with the whole company every two weeks. And as I mentioned, I kind of do these walkabouts with our customers. And about a month ago, I was on the phone call. I had a phone call with one of our customers. And I thought he did such a nice job kind of articulating the reason that he uses us. And he wasn't talking about the, the speeds and feeds and our features, but he was talking about what what he was doing to respond to the requirements that were coming to him from his company. Mm. And a light bulb went off. I said, can you join our all hands meeting? And he came in and we had him kind of mid track, uh, you know, in the, in the agenda, which was a mistake by the way. 
um, should have let off with him because he started talking and we, and, and I didn't, I wasn't paying a lot of attention. You know, the team had given him like a 10 minute window and he started going on. There were a million questions coming from our team on the chat bot. I sent the person running the call a message and I said, kill the rest of the agenda. This is going to go until we're done with the call. Love that. And it should have been the entire call, but you know, we'll know for next time. And we're going to make this part of a normal like thing that we do in the company. Like, I think that's a way to scale, right? It's a way to have not just one discussion, but to have everybody listen to what this individual was saying and, you know, kind of a little trick or kind of a, a framework, hopefully that we'll, we'll stay true to as we move forward and kind of bring that level of intelligence, you know, to my entire global team. Yeah, no, I love that idea. Just kind of going back, one thing I was realizing, you know, you, you kind of, your career has had this interesting transition from like kind of product and technology into marketing and then into executive. But I, I remember, you know, there's a, there's a blog post that that Ben Horowitz wrote about good product manager, bad product manager. And, yeah, yeah. and he starts off by saying something like, you know, product is not just a like responsibility of marketing. And at the time, it felt like most product organizations were actually part of a marketing organization, right? Yeah. Is that actually the structure that it sort of you know, now I think about product as sort of more closely and, and sort of more closer to, to engineering in most, you know, enterprise software orgs. But for you, was was your start sort of like as a product person in a marketing org? I think way back it was part of the marketing organization. As long as I've been responsible or had responsibility for product, which goes back a number of companies at this point, I've always had the function report to me. Okay. directly. Uh, to, to me, marketing is a distinct function from product, which is a distinct function from engineering, right? I think those teams should have their own opinions and belief. There's some level of tension, healthy tension that I think is is very logical and good because it knows you, that way, you know, you're, you're kind of pushing the limits, uh, you know, for a particular decision. And and that, that's, I, I know some teams organize differently. For me, this, this works. And, I, and I, I really enjoy having kind of deep exposure to both. But I, I've been blessed to work with some really remarkable product and engineering leaders that have, have gotten, you know, really very, I think, healthy collaborative relationships in place. Great, yeah. And then, I mean, your career sort of then moved from, like, you know, running marketing to then, so it looks like you had, like, some COO roles, right? Yeah. You know, how do you think about, the role of the COO in an enterprise software company versus, you know, now where you're a CEO. This is my first CEO position. And while I think a lot of my experiences prepared me for the role, nothing quite prepares you for it until you, you've taken the post. And I've had a great experience. And again, I'm, I'm blessed to be surrounded by an amazing team and, and great investors. But, you know, I think the, for me, the chief operating officer positions were really important because, you know, previous I was responsible for a function, right? So I had to optimize marketing. I had to optimize product management. I had to optimize corporate development. And COO means different things to different companies. You know, uh, in my previous companies, I had responsibility for a number of significant functions. It really forces you to, to think about how to operate at scale because you can't you can't touch every customer. You can't touch every decision. You know, you, you need to sort of provide a vision for where we're going and, you know, hire, develop, and retain the best possible people and get the heck out of their way, right? You know, give people an understanding of what we're trying to achieve, right? So what does success look like? And then give them the space to figure out how to get there. And hopefully in my past, I've, I've recognized enough kind of hiccups along the way. I can spot some red flags and, and help people avoid some avoidable mistakes and provide an environment where they can, where they can excel. And I think when you're running an individual function, you have that. When you're responsible for multiple functions at the same time, you just can't touch. It really does force you to disconnect from all of the decisions and pick and choose the most important, most impactful, and then give your leaders space to, to have that experience with their own teams. Interesting. And I mean, like day to day as a COO, what were you doing that's sort of like different than what you're doing as a CEO? So the my two COO positions, I had responsibility for essentially marketing, product management, 
engineering and corporate development. So they, they, it, at the time they were pretty meaty and significant functions. So okay. I think that for me was good training and muscle building that got me ready, you know, that, that helped get me ready for, for the CEO position, mm-hmm. you know, but I didn't have responsibility for all of the company's financials or our fundraising or investor, mm. you know, relationships or, or HR, which, which then when you add that and, and sales, you know, when you add that on top of what I was doing before, you kind of end up with the full scope of a CEO, but it's, you know, it's a lot. And I think to understand ultimately in, in an enterprise software organization, I think the more you understand about the customer, what their requirements are, and how we build and deliver and service products, like you have to know that. Because at the end of the day, people, they're only going to buy your software if it solves a valuable problem. And it's the best at doing that. So the more you understand about that part of the life cycle, I think the better leader you will be. If you don't understand that, I think it's it's hard for you to be, you know, to become a CEO of, of such an organization because it's so critical to the nature of the company is shipping that product that's going to matter. Hmm. Interesting. So I, I want to kind of shift a little bit into 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 tempo. And so, you know, obviously you just joined about nine months ago as the CEO. Uh, company's been around for a while. Maybe just like give us some history and context on tempo. And then we can dive into some of the more interesting things around sort of marketplaces that you were kind of alluding to earlier. Sure. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Happy to. Uh, Tempo is a. Uh, it's it's such a great company. So I'm so blessed to be here. You know, starting at a high level, and then I, I kind of walk back just to give you some framework for the company's evolution. Tempo provides a suite of products in the Atlassian marketplace. The products help enterprise and SMB customers for that matter, but but we do target the enterprise. It helps the enterprise plan, budget, and track time, team capacity, right? So you think about, you know, how many people do we have on a particular software development project? How much time do they have? How much time are we allocating to projects? And then how much time have they actually used against those timelines so sort of tracking the actuals versus planned time uh, it ends up becoming a valuable part of helping uh, product management and software development teams better allocate their people make sure that they've got people working on kind of the highest value sorts of projects and ultimately it helps product leaders have a better sense for the cost of building and maintaining products not just at a product level but you can even come down and say with quite high levels of granularity, how much a particular feature costs Mm. in the product. So from a portfolio management perspective, we help, you know, product leaders or general managers really understand the financials around their product and do a better job of, of, of developing and delivering those. And so when did the company get started? Like, how did it get started? Was it always, you know, did it evolve a bit? Like, what's the kind of backstory and context on it? Really interesting backstory. Uh, there is, it was founded in Reykjavik, Iceland. Uh, it was part of a, a company uh, named Origo Software. Uh, Origo is a large Icelandic company, and some folks there developed a product for their own use, and they developed a time tracking product. At the time, uh, the company was doing a number of software development projects, and they wanted a way to better track and allocate their time so that they could be more accurate billing back their projects to the client. Sure. They developed the product. It worked pretty well. Somebody decided to put it on the Atlassian marketplace because perhaps other people who were using Jira would have this problem. And this is like, what? how long ago? Like, when did that all sort of happen? Oh, the company uh, put the first application in the Atlassian marketplace in 2009. Okay, got it. So early on, so Atlassian launched the marketplace. This enterprising team built the product. They were using it for their own needs. So it was meeting their needs. And they said, you know, there's probably other teams and companies out there that would benefit from this. And they put it on the marketplace and then they started charging for it. And lo and behold, people started using it. So from day one, it had been a PLG company, right? It was in the marketplace. People were trying it. They were downloading it. They were using it. And in that environment, you have to earn the customer because they will churn in a heartbeat. 
right? It's, Mm -hmm. I don't have an enterprise seller that's going to help, you know, talk them off the ledge or negotiate a contract. It's all click through. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's a high volume environment. And I think that feedback helped the team to evolve their products and to evolve with what they were hearing from their customers. And they, you know, started introducing some additional products, you know, as part of that. So was it part of that initial company that they worked out of, or did they start a separate company to build this? No, it was part. It was part of Orgo. Okay, so it was operating like a little project group inside Orgo, and and someone at Orgo said, you know, this might actually be a standalone company if it had you know a higher level of focus around the company. You know, mm-hmm. we we're Orgo, we have a different mission, but maybe we should we should spin this out. And Orgo looked for and found a financial partner that helped to orchestrate the carve-out of the business. Mm. And that is my current investor, uh, Diversus Capital, a uh, private equity group, really a growth equity-minded set of investors that helped to orchestrate the carve-out from Orgo. And Orgo and Diversus remain the primary owners of the business, so Orgo still has a sizable ownership in the company. They've got seats on the board. I meet with them all the time. But Tempo operates as a standalone entity, as a standalone software business. And, and when did the carve-out happen? Uh, 2018. Okay. And so they, they started in 2009. And this is like 2009 is before Atlassian had even raised that like first outside funding from Excel. Like that happened in 2010, right? So this is like, yeah. you know, very, very early before like... Really, I would say before, I mean, people were all using Jira at that time. It was still like, it was very popular, yeah. but it wasn't the behemoth that it is today, right? Yes. You know, no one, you know, I think maybe that, like, that was like a probably valued the company at like, you know, a couple, maybe 200 million yeah. bucks maximum, probably, right? Right. And if we knew, if we knew then what we know now. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And so, and this is also, you know, I'd say like probably at that time, what you know, most of Jira's software was you know Jira server, so it was like you know hosted on prem. And I think the marketplace was like basically these Java plugins that you would you know kind of put into your into your instance of Jira more or less, right? Yeah, but it you know the interesting thing, and I don't, I, I you know I can imagine what they were thinking when they launched the marketplace, but it's an important part of Atlassian, right? They count on their marketplace partners, people like Tempo, sure, to develop capabilities, you know, plugins, extensions that are going to deliver, quote, a whole product for their enterprise customers. And there's so many enterprises on the face of the earth. Not all of them have exactly the same requirements around this product space that companies like Tempo kind of get formed and get plugged into a customer's deployment so that that customer has just what they need. And it has, I mean, the marketplace has thousands of companies and products. I mean, some of these you know, quote, products that you get in the marketplace may be built and supported by three or four engineers, you know, in their part-time. Now, we're a a whole standalone Mm -hmm. company. We're one of the largest vendors in the Atlassian marketplace, but I have to hand it to them. They have, there's such a long tail of products in the marketplace. You really, you'd be hard-pressed to think of some requirement that can't be served between Jira and one or more of the plugins or, or products available there. Mm. Uh, it's it's really this healthy coexistence that that exists at this point. Yeah, I mean that's uh one, you know, the, the thing that I've kind of know about marketplaces is basically the customers that consume like if you're lasting in any Jira customer that has like probably three or more marketplace apps installed into their into their instance is like, you know, probably the lifetime value is like four times higher or something, you know, yes. because they've they've customized it, they've like made the connections, and so it it really becomes like a key part of of driving customer retention and probably some amount of expansion as well. Oh yes, and they, you know, I have to hand it to Atlassian; they they treat their partners really well. I think it's a very it's a healthy coexistence because we need each other, mm-hmm. and we help to, as you're suggesting, sort of complete the Jira offering. In our case, Jira, but but there's other Atlassian products that are in the marketplace too. That, that meets the customer's needs, and if not for the marketplace partners, you think about all of that functionality that Atlassian would have to develop on their own in order to meet the permutation of requirements. You know, so what may seem like an individual set of two or three features to Atlassian can be large enough to sustain a couple of small companies. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, and, you know, someone to focus on it and really go deep with it and really make it work. I mean, so what, what have you found has really worked in terms of like 
you know, making sure that your marketplace, you know, because one, one thing about marketplaces, and, and Tempo probably has some advantage having been there for a long time. You know, so being an early mover in a marketplace can often be helpful. Yeah. But like, what else has really been sort of like beneficial or has really worked for marketplace exposure or, you know, making sure that like you're successful if this is your primary channel? Yes, because we, we have a lot riding on that channel. Right. So we pay a lot of attention to it for sure. And yes, we do, you know, Tempo did and remains to have an early mover advantage in the space. Mm-hmm. You know, we're also, I think, significantly larger than the typical marketplace partner. So we have, you know, a full-blown and high-quality product management team, engineering team that are, are trying to listen to the signals in the product, to evolve the products, to, to be not only the largest in our space, but also the best, right? So we have, you know, at this point, you know, more than one in four of the Fortune 500 customers use Tempo software. You know, we've got more than 20,000 customers that have used us. We have a lot of implementations, a lot of reviews. So if you're looking for a product in our space, um, we would be the obvious front runner. And that's something that we earn I believe every single day by listening to our customers, addressing, you know, complaints or recommendations in the product. You know, if somebody writes a bad review, we try to understand what caused it and address the source of the issue so we don't have it again, you know, and really protect that impression that people in the marketplace have because that is the way they experience our software, right? That is the selling process. It's the same way that you at your company are probably trying to hire the best and brightest sales executives, right? And run the best and most successful marketing campaigns for us. That selling and marketing function is largely concentrated in the marketplace, Mm. right? So being careful and mindful about how our landing pages are written, you know, maniacally focusing on the language and making sure that we're using the language that our prospects use on the landing pages, addressing complaints that people may raise, um, you know, ensuring that when they come in a trial, we've got the highest likelihood of converting them. When they convert, making sure that we understand the reasons why people churn and try to remove those. So I don't have a continual hole that I need to fill with churn. We can focus on growing the top of the funnel. But it all starts for us in that that kind of marketplace environment. And, and things that may be more impactful in your world, like an enterprise website, are important for us because people want to know the company behind the product. Sure. But it starts in the marketplace first, right? That's probably where they're going to learn about us first. And you have multiple apps in the marketplace, not just one, correct? Correct. Yeah. Are those other apps sort of like core, like lines of business or products, or are they more like feeding towards the core product? Uh, no, they're individual standalone products. I mean, they're better when they're used in combination, mm. right? So if, if a customer is using, you know, two or three products in combination, they're going to get more value. But some people don't need that. Some people may be only interested in tracking time across a set of, you know, projects, and they'll use one of our products. You know, if their requirement is more on the, on the budgeting side, they may use the budgeting product. But increasingly, we're seeing customers use the products in combination because the way they're integrated, it really does, it unlocks what we believe to be a higher level value proposition that, you know, kind of increasingly senior people in the enterprise, you know, have. Interesting. So, it, we, you know, I, many enterprise providers follow this sort of land and expand model where you try to land at a customer site with a product solving a problem and then expand, you know, additional users, additional products. It's similar here. We just do it in a lower touch way or via one of our reselling partners who have a higher touch, but still it's not quite as high touch as some classic enterprise selling organizations might consider. And then do you sort of like escalate those up over time? And like, you know, do you end up with like close relationships or how how do you do those upsells? Like, is it, is there ever like a high touch? Yeah. um, When I, when we say high touch, it's probably low touch from your perspective. Um, But you know, this, this is still enterprise software, right? It's an enterprise solution. It's being bought by an enterprise. It's just lower touch than kind of classic enterprise software would, would otherwise describe. But what we do is we look for a number of signals in the product. These are both usage metrics in terms of how the product itself is being used. We look at the number of seats that people have purchased. We also look at the size of the account or the company. 
and when those factors kind of come together to indicate a bit of a customer score and if the if the customer scores above a certain amount we'll try to get one of our teams to make a human contact with the with the team and begin a little bit more of a classic customer success relationship. Mm-hmm. Can we help with onboarding? Can we help answer questions? It's a higher touch environment. And we have, you know, I would say quite a few customers that fall into that bucket, but it's a small portion of the 20 plus thousand customers who use us, you know, but a customer who, who may have, you know, 50 or a hundred licenses, but they have a very large engineering organization, we would probably try to put a human team in touch with the account to see if there's anything that we can help with so that we could look for ways to expand either through additional seats or with, uh, with additional products. So yes, we have the customer success function, but it touches a small percentage of our overall customers. And is it all inbound? Like you, you, you're only talking to folks who come and touch and use your products first? Or is, it, is there any amount of like, hey, we knew that's a big Jira user, let's go try to get them to use our stuff and to sell them on the value and why it should work for them? It is almost predominantly inbound. Mm-hmm. That said, we do have relationships with 185, maybe 186 uh, global solution partners. Okay. Those companies will have more of a direct classic relationship with the enterprise itself. Those companies, our partners may be involved helping a client to go through a software selection project, or maybe they're implementing Jira, they're implementing some Jira workflows, they're implementing a solution for a particular client, and they will bring us along as part of that solution. That is a more classic sales process, but in this case, our partners are doing the selling. We have a small team ourselves that support the partner. Yeah. So we'll support the partner with enablement, with training, you know, with some troubleshooting or product implementation. They do the work. Most of those partners are kind of regional partners. They may have a specialty in a particular geographic region. They may have a specialty in a particular vertical, like maybe they do, you know, banking. And we're kind of baked into a number of solutions that will kind of go along for the ride. So in terms of our own team, my team here, it tends to be more hands-off where you either have the product itself doing the selling in a trial on a direct side, or if it's on our partner-led side, the partner is doing a lot of the touch and we're supporting the partner. And so, you know, that, that guess those, those partners, it's, it's interesting. It's like you kind of have primarily like a, a, a very channel focused sort of business right because in one side the marketplace is is a channel like that is the primary channel and the other side is these channel partners which sound like kind of traditional like value added resellers vars or like system integrators sis and those folks are kind of taking you into some of these other accounts like did those partners come inbound or did you kind of you know, af- after you started to realize this is a valuable channel, start to create some amount of outbound effort to to connect with those folks. A little, a little of both. You know, I think we're from a portfolio perspective, we're looking to make sure that we've got kind of broad coverage globally, and also, you know, solution or you know, vertical centric areas. We want to make sure that we've got good coverage. And, and frankly, you know, we look for some of the larger, more successful partners who are selling Atlassian and specifically in our world, Jira-based solutions and make sure that we've got a relationship with them. And again, just like Atlassian, it's a healthy coexistence because we need them mm-hmm. and they need us. So we we make a very high level of investment with that with our solution partners because they're so instrumental to our business. And they end up with like uh, like generally channel. I don't know. Sometimes you're giving people between fifteen and thirty percent of of the sale, yeah. and so and sometimes that's like the first year. Sometimes that's more ongoing. So is is it like a similar model? I mean, you know, you don't have to get into like exact details around the economics, but like you know, similar kind of concepts in terms of how you structure those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Similar yeah. concepts. You know, I think you're right. My enterprise software company is different than yours. You know, the allocation of of my investments or expenses are different. Mm-hmm. And for us, these are our routes to market. It's the yeah. marketplace, right? And, and there's rates, by the way, that we we pay Atlassian or they will right. they will withhold a percentage of the sale to cover their costs. So I'm paying 
you may have to pay employees. In some cases, I'm paying a partner, I'm paying the Atlassian fee in order to get that, you know, that, that route to market. You know, we have a high degree of repeatability and kind of a higher volume environment. The downside of that, back to the earlier part of the discussion, is, you know, in that environment, how do you get personal with the customers? Right. How do you make sure that you're staying close to the people who are using the product so that we're evolving the product in a way that is is as good as possible? That's been an adjustment for me coming here. I just I don't have that kind of enterprise seller team that I can plug into to get those insights. Mm. So it's been a good, it's been, I mean, it's been a fun challenge and I think I'm looking at it creatively because of my background, but kind of starving for that, those level of insights that you probably get more naturally because you're probably involved personally in some of your sales efforts, I'm guessing. Yeah. Yeah. I stay, I stay pretty connected to, to customers because, you know, it is how I, you know, understand what we're doing. And, and it's funny, the, the other thing, and you probably end up, you know, well, before the pandemic, maybe now again, um, I find the other way to do this is just to be at conferences. Like, we'll, we'll get a booth. We had KubeCon very recently, uh, and that's a big conference for us because we're so Kubernetes-focused. And I was at the booth, like, probably 90% of the time. Yeah. And super focused on... Like, you know, everyone that walked by, I wanted to talk to because, like, to me, yeah, and, it's, yeah. and it's interesting. I think, like, I was trying to ex- explain this to the team. I was like, it's like, because, you know, like, first conference is back. There's not that many folks there. So everyone's kind of talking to each other. I'm like, like, we really, you know, they haven't seen each other in person sometimes ever. And so I was trying to express, I was like, I need you all to like turn facing outwards and like yeah, talk yeah. to these people that are coming by. <laughs> this is like, and it, I, maybe I expressed it a bit too much, like, you know, target rich environment or something. But really, it's like, these are the people whose problems we're trying to solve. Yeah. And like, so talk to them as much as you can, understand how they think about this problem. I mean, I, I like got a, a handful of like core insights. I mean, I've been running this business for almost seven years and there was like insights that I got around, you know, how different banks and different, you know, end customers think about this problem and approach this. And I was like, oh, wow, like that's, that's different than I thought it was. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think you just, to your point, like this, it's another way to really get in front of a ton of customers yep. all like, you know, within a, like it's from like the customer fire hose, right? Yeah, it's a it's a great point. And you know what? I hadn't thought of this, but like regarding conferences, I and I, I share your perspective. While they can be physically grueling. Oh gosh. So um, exhausting. You know, who who's there, right? You've got potential prospects walking around. You probably are booths away from your competitors, mm-hmm. right? People who are selling against you who may have a creative way of messaging the same kind of thing. Like there's stuff to learn from people who may buy from you, who will never buy from you, who you're competing with. You've got analysts and media walking around who are spending their day being briefed by your competitors and who are talking with your customers. Like there's tons of insights walking around. Yeah, You just have to rally and, and kind of get plugged into it. I haven't been to a conference post this COVID world Atlassian has a very large conference that was virtual last year. Mm-hmm. Um, we will go to the next one, supposedly at this point, will be in person and we will be there. We will be a sponsor. I will go. I will be there to help set up the booth and I will break it down. There's so many reasons to be there. I agree with you in our world. You, you got to pick up those insights because it's like inches add up. Yeah, for sure. Breaking down the booth might be, that's, that's sometimes I'm like, I can't. I'm like, I need to lay down for a minute. I didn't say I was going to break it down. I yeah. said I'd be there okay, through the, the breakdown. Break, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. I, I get you. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I, I think the the marketplace is really interesting because it, as enterprise software companies get bigger and bigger, I mean, Atlassian's you know enormous, Datadog, Salesforce, obviously, but you know, GitHub, like GitLab, etc. As they become so big and they have so much reach, mm-hmm. one, they can't do everything. Two, they do start to open these marketplaces and integrations, and so like. That ability to have, like, to reach their customers quickly, you know, it's kind of like um, it reminds me of, you know, when Facebook first launched their like, you know, you know the the, the platform, the Facebook platform, you know, at, at F eight, like the days after that, it was easier for like a consumer application to get a million users than it like had been ever before. And the same thing is probably true from like an enterprise software perspective, where yeah. you can get into these marketplaces and find an interesting way, something that's compelling for the end users of that product. Like you're going to reach an, a number of users far faster than you ever would have prior. Yeah. And so, you know, thinking about it as both like a 
lead generation, if you are more of a top-down business, or you know, truly being able to run like a true product-led growth, you know, business out of it, where you start with free trials and then you, you know, folks have to pay to keep going. It's a really interesting sort of approach to to the business. I agree, and you know, I think you know, so much of our success is tied to Atlassian's success, right? And and it's a great platform. There's great people leading the company. You know, their culture is such that it it works really well with the marketplace itself. You know, vendors and people leading, you know, solution teams like me trust that Atlassian is going to kind of evolve in a way that is that's good for them and us at the same time. Not all companies are going to do that. A lot yeah. of people may, you know, I think... Atlassian has shown the value around a marketplace. So I think, you know, to your point, there's a lot of other companies who have and will launch marketplaces. They're not all going to be built and operated the same way. Sure. And, you know, what's put in motion on day one may evolve in a way that is better and better for a particular, you know, vendor or not. And you've, you've got to understand that dynamic because so much of, of our world relies on some of those pieces that are in place you know, how the marketplace operates, how we have relationships there. And as, you know, companies ponder launching into a different marketplace, kind of trying to figure out what those characteristics are. Yeah. And trusting that the vendor, you know, behind the marketplace is going to do the right thing. You know, does the vendor have a history of looking at top selling partners and then plugging that hole in their product? Right. You know, if, if you're a vendor in one of these marketplaces and now you suddenly see the marketplace host starting to implement all of these features that, you know, are behind your business, you know, not only does that present risk to a particular vendor, but now you've got everybody else saying, oh, that could happen to me. Yeah. Right. So yeah. I think you really, the vendor host or the, the ho- marketplace host themselves really has to think through the dynamics that they want to create in their ecosystem, you know, wh- where they're going to kind of leave off and let their partners pick up because the the whole product is really what end customers like the enterprise are using. And I, the marketplace host has to think about that, you know, through that lens. And I think Atlassian's done a great job and and obviously spawned a lot of successful businesses. Yeah, no, they, they definitely have. And I think it's, you know, they've published, I don't know if they've published any stats recently, but I mean, years ago when they first published, it was like, you know, the, like $100 million have been transacted through the Amazon marketplace. It was like, you know, not that long after it had been launched, it was you know a couple of years afterwards. So yes. yeah, super super impressive. I mean, you know, what, what other kind of frameworks or you know kind of you know insights do you, do you have you kind of evolved from from your career and that you, that you think would be interesting to the audience? Well, the the big one really for me was this whole Nahito thing. <laughs> Nothing interesting happens in the office, and as you can probably tell at this point in our discussion, so much of the decisions that I make now are really influenced by getting people out of the building. Yeah, no, I think that's it's a, it's a core theme of this of this talk. I think it's it's been really really insightful and helpful. So, yeah, I, I know, hopefully it helps other people. You know, I think that you know there. The other little framework that, you know, some of my teams make fun of me for saying is, you know, just do something over a hot coffee, Hmm. right? And then we started calling them hot coffee sprints, meaning do something while your coffee is hot. By the time the coffee is no longer warm, maybe you've worked on something too long. Interesting. And we, we introduced that and some of the people that were around when we kind of figured this thing out. I'm honored to still have them on my team. We still work together. So every once in a while, they'll laugh at that. But it was in response to my observation that sometimes people get hung up on trying to figure out everything. Yeah. You know, and I would say, listen, why don't you just draft something? Like if it was, um, you know, if it was a, a particular piece of collateral or marketing campaign, uh, I remember doing this with somebody who was doing some corporate development research and they're like, well, it's going to take, you know, five days to do that. And I said, okay, it may take five days to do it entirely, but do we even know we should spend five days? I'm like, why don't you spend 20 minutes on it and just kind of get a quick sense for whether or not we should invest and do more work on that particular thing. I'm like, why don't you work on that when your coffee's too cold to drink, move on. And at that point, you probably know enough to know whether or not we should keep going on something. And I, so I still break that out every once in a while where it looks like 
somebody's getting hung up, kind of mired in the details, and you just want to pull somebody back and say, just give me a sense. Should we continue doing something or not? Or take a, you know, a customer email. I don't need you doing it all day. Do it in 20 minutes. Let's see what it looks like. We'll start there. Yeah. One of my first roles as a, as a morning executive, I still was, was being a little bit more too thoughtful in our, in our CEO is a small company. It was like a 20 person company and I was the CMO and he like, my, my mantra became think less, do more. Yeah. And it's, and yeah. it really became a, a core mantra over time for me to just be like, you know, you can overthink things. And I think like, if you enjoy this sort of like debate and the, like the analysis and like, you know, the, the back and forth and trying to really, it's like, sometimes you just need to ship stuff and sometimes you just need to like, nope, I'm done. Like, let's put it out there. Let's see what happens. Yeah. You know, there's a quality threshold that I think things need to pass and you shouldn't, you know, maybe allow that, but like, you, know, you can be a little bit embarrassed um, or a little bit like, oh, we wanted to do more. Oh, we forgot to do that. Like, that's okay. But yeah, just get it done over a hot coffee. Like, you yeah. know, that's why your coffee's still hot. That's all you can work on this. So. Yeah, or may, it, it, you may not need to finish it, but just take take a quick pass at it. You know, don't overthink it. Now, I realize that runs contrary to me saying, like, don't ship too fast. Make sure you have the customer's perspective. But you know, I think over time you you get a sense for what what tool or framework to break out and where a team member may be getting stuck. And sometimes, you know, I use it myself, by the way, because you know, I look at my never ending list of of sort of things that I need to work on and. And while my training as a product manager to kind of sometimes work on the higher, you know, the the lesser known things, the more risky projects, the you know, the things that you really need to kind of understand more quickly because they're so paramount to what else is happening, you know, starting on some of those gnarly problems. It's human nature to want to kind of check things off your list. And sometimes you're picking on the easy things. Yeah. And you you can't do that because, you know in our jobs and you, you got to solve the big gnarly things and kind of pave the way for people. So sometimes I'll look at the bottom of my list, which tends to be the last things I want to deal with. And I'll start on those. I'll be like, all right, mm. cup of hot coffee. I'm going to attack this. Let's figure out, let's get a position on this and figure out how much more time is needed. So, <laughs> yeah, it's like just being, sometimes just move it, move the ball down the field a little bit, right? Get a little more progress, make some, make a difference. Don't just like, don't just think about it. Don't just put it off. Just like go see if you can tackle it. Yes. Exactly. So I'll do it over coffee. I love it. Mark, thank you so much. This has uh, been a real pleasure to, to have you on and to, get, and to get your insights here. So I, I really appreciate all your time. Uh, Grant, my pleasure. Really appreciate you building this resource for the industry. Uh, content is, uh, has been really helpful to me and hopefully the discussion helps other people too. Amazing. Thank you so much. That's all we have time for today. If you're interested in being a guest on this show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic, or just to learn more about enterprise features, find us at enterpriseready.io. To learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com to check out the library. It's packed with amazing talks on sales, marketing, product, and general management from founders of developer tools companies and other industry leaders. This podcast is also brought to you by my company, Replicated, where we enable cloud-native software vendors like HashiCorp, CircleCI, Sneak, and many others to operationalize and scale the distribution of their modern on-prem applications to their largest enterprise customers. Check us out at replicated.com.